we are in week two of experiencing God, and uh, it's already been a great week working through the workbook that uh, we encourage you guys to grab. And you might be saying, this is my first week, and I'm already behind. It's okay. You can get caught up. Uh, we want to encourage you, if you haven't gone to Amazon, buy the Experiencing God workbook and use it as part of your devotional time with the Lord, quiet time with the Lord. I've been so encouraged with the amount of people who said, hey, I started it this week. And I uh, just want to encourage you, join the journey with your home group uh, by yourself. And we'll be talking about the principles that we're learning in the workbook week after week. Last week, we started with John chapter 5, where Jesus uh, is our model and our example of how we experience God, how we have relationship with God. And he talks about it plainly, about this first principle that we have to understand in John chapter 5. He says this, he says, my father is always at his work, and to this very day, I too am working. And so it's this idea that Jesus says that the father's at work, so that God is at work. And I know that for some of you, you're like, I know that. Some of you go, I know that, but I haven't experienced that. Some of you go, I don't know if I really believe that. Because sometimes in life, your circumstances, you go, how can God possibly at work in this situation, right? But the reality is that God is always at work. And Jesus is our example of how to interact with the Father, how to experience God in a real way and experience his purposes and his ways. And so for us, we are starting this journey where God is at work and joins the Father, and that God is always at work. And we've got to start there. We've got to start, if we're going to experience God in a real way, believing and trusting that God's at work, even when I may not see it, understand it, experience it, feel it, all those different things. God is at work. Now, as we start today, uh, I'm going to introduce you to a mystery that I'm still trying to figure out. This is a mystery that I have spent time on. I've had conversation with my family. This is a mystery I have gone online and actually searched to try to find an answer. You might be saying, what is this mystery that you speak of? This is the mystery. Why is it that as a man, I will go into the kitchen, I will open up the fridge door, I will look for that specific ketchup bottle and I cannot find it. And I go, honey, we are out of ketchup. And she says, no, we are not. I say, yes, we are. And she says, no, we are not out of ketchup. It is right in front of your face. Am I the only guy that wrestles with this? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The rest of you are either amazing or liars. One of the two. Okay. I cannot find the ketchup bottle that is right in front of my face or the screwdriver that's right in front of my face, whatever the case may be, but I can be driving down the freeway going 70 miles an hour between here and Mountain Home and 500 yards in the distance, I see deer and antelope that are standing still. <laughs> and I can say, look at those deer and antelope. And my wife goes, I don't know what you're looking at. I go right over there. <laughs> and then she starts yelling at me, why are you looking over there? Keep your eyes on the road. I'm like, I'm fine, we're fine. We're not going to die. I don't understand this mystery. I don't understand how that works, but I can do that. I can't find the ketchup bottle, but I can find wild animals going 70 miles an hour down the road. Uh, what do we learn? Where we as people, where we focus, where we look, 
the things that we look to have a driving force in our life. Would you agree with that? Where we look, what we look to has a driving force in our life. And not only does that have a driving force of our life, it has implications then on how we live. It has implications for how we live, what we look to, what we seek after, what we're looking towards. It has huge implications for how we live our life. Today we're going to talk about looking to God for relationship. And that how we look to God has huge implications for how we live. And God, Jesus shows us an example of how we need to look to God. And if we're willing to look to God, it actually changes the trajectory of our life and has implications for our lives in so many different ways. And Jesus talks plainly about this idea of how we look to God, what our relationship is supposed to look like in in relationship to the Father, and what our relationship is supposed to look like with Jesus. As we look at this passage today in John chapter 12, here's what I need you to understand about John chapter 12. This is at the end of Jesus' life. Jesus has gotten to the point now where he, he is set on Jerusalem. In fact, he's entered into Jerusalem where the temple is, where they offer sacrifice, where the religious leaders of the Jewish people are led through these people in Jerusalem. Up until this point, Jesus is only kind of dabbles in Jerusalem when there's festivals, different things that are going on. He hangs out in Jerusalem, then he leaves. And he spends most of his time in the country. He spends most of his time with the common people. He spends most of his time hanging out in places that we, we would call Cuna, Middleton, Star, out in the country with the country folk we call those rednecks okay that's where jesus has spent the majority of his ministry for three years but now he's moving into jerusalem now he's moving into boise now he's beginning to actually set resolute on what he was actually coming on earth to do two things to make disciples and to die on a cross for the sins of the world And not just to die on the cross for the sins of the world, but to actually conquer death and to be resurrected. And he is entering into that reality. Now, here's the thing. As much as Jesus was fully God, he was also fully man. And he had emotions attached to that reality of death. And he starts to speak to a group of people about what he's called to and what he's about ready to do and what his relationship with the Father is like, and what your relationship with the Father could also look like as well. It says this in John chapter 12, verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Who are these Greeks? The Greeks is another word for Gentiles or non-believers, people that weren't Jewish, people that didn't believe in Yahweh, but they're coming to Jesus because they're hearing about Jesus. Jesus is doing a lot of amazing things. And when you do amazing things, word gets out and people come to understand more about this man named Jesus. Well, what is Jesus doing? He's healing people. He's resurrecting people from the dead. He's multiplying bread and fish and feeding thousands of people. His word is being spread all throughout the land. And so even non-believers are coming and saying, who is this guy? Just like maybe you this morning have come and you're going, who is Jesus? What is this church really like? They have questions. They maybe are skeptical. Maybe you've come, you've got questions. 
You've got skepticism about Jesus. They come to Jesus because they want to spend time with him. So these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, country north of Jerusalem, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears, what's that next word? It bears much. So Jesus has spent the majority of his life in submission, servanthood to the Father. He said, wherever my Father is at work, I do not do anything on my own accord. I join the Father in what he's doing. He's been living his whole life Surrender to the Father. This is the first time where Jesus is saying, may my life now be glorified. May my life be glorified. But the way that his life is going to be glorified is through what? Is through death. Death on a cross. And so Jesus is starting to show us that his life is actually glorified. His name is glorified in surrender submission to the Father. And that he lived a life that way. But as his life is being glorified, it's surrendered submission to the Father. And the Father now is going to bring glory to the Son as proof that he is one with the Father. But up until this point, Jesus has continued to live submitted and servanthood to the Father. If you remember when Jesus went to um, be baptized, did Jesus need to be baptized? No, he didn't need to be baptized, but he chose to be baptized because he was surrendered and submitted to the Father. And then after John baptized him and brought him underneath of the water, he comes out of the water and the heavens open up and it says, this is my son who I am well pleased from the Father. Jesus goes out to the desert right after he gets baptized. And as he's out in the desert, he is tempted for 40 days and 40 nights by the enemy to say, renounce God as the Father in his kingdom. Just take things into your own hands. And Jesus doesn't submit to the enemy. He submits to the Father and his word over and over and over. And Jesus says, I don't do anything on my own accord. I do everything that the Father wants me to do. Uh, many days, Jesus would start his day away from the crowds. They would go, where's Jesus? And they would find Jesus praying on the mountain. Why? Submitted. Servant to the Father. Jesus, shortly after this, in John chapter 12, is in the Garden of Gethsemane in the middle of the night. And he's praying. And he's praying to the Father because he knows he's about ready to get arrested. He knows he's about ready to be beaten. He knows he's about ready to be crucified on a cross. And as he's pray, praying, he goes to his disciples who most likely had had a lot of wine and a lot to drink. And in the middle of the night, they want to pass out. And Jesus is like, would you just pray with me? You're my best friends. Would you pray with me? And he cries out to Father, and he says, if there is another way for your will to be done, would you let me know? If there's another way to reconcile the world back to us without me dying, if there's another way, can you let it be known? But if there is no other way, Father, may your will be done. What did Jesus live? Jesus lived a servant, submitted life, to the Father. He didn't look to himself 
He always was looking to the Father. He was always submitted to the Father. God, what is your way? What is it you want, Lord? Jesus pivots the conversation. He talks about his own life being glorified. That through his death, real fruit would come. Then he pivots the conversation to you. He pivots the conversation to us about what our relationship should look like with the Father. Verse 25, whoever loves his life, what's he say? Loses it. Everybody say loses. Whoever loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am. There will my servant be also if anyone serves me the father will honor him and so jesus models a life looking to god pursuing god submitted surrender to god and then he says your life if you want to follow after me and after the father your life needs to look the same your life needs to look like my life a life that is fully submitted, surrendered, just as Jesus is one with the Father, you can be one with Jesus if you choose servanthood, submission to Jesus. If you choose that, which for all of us, we vacillate that as followers of Jesus, don't we? One minute, we can be fully submitted, fully surrendered, fully on mission with Jesus, and then the next minute, be completely self-centered, can't we? I can we vacillate, vacillate. We go back and forth, back and forth. Jesus is the only one that did it perfectly. You might be saying, well, I don't know. I'm doing pretty good sometimes. Well, let's look at the list. What does a, a life look to self look like? What does a life look like looking to God? This is what it looks like. Here's the difference. A self-centered life that looks to self is focused on self, is proud of self and self's accomplishments, is self-confident, depends on self and abilities, affirms self, seeks to be acceptable to the world and its ways, looks at circumstances from a human perspective, chooses selfish and worldly living. Anybody else live that way some of the time or most of the time? All of us. We're taught this way. The world teaches us this way. We're taught this by our parents, by family members, to look at self. And oftentimes it feels good, doesn't it? For a while. But eventually it gets empty. Eventually it becomes slavery. I'm constantly trying to feed ego, self. And what Jesus says is that if you're willing to follow me, it means you quit living a self-ruled life, a self-focused life. That you begin to look to God and live a God-centered life. What does this look like? It means places our, our confidence in God. Depends on God and his ability and his provision. What does this look like practically? Ever been in a fight with somebody? And you try to control the outcome? You are not trusting in his provision. You're not trusting in God's outcome. You're trying to do somebody else's part, not just your own. Happens in relationship all the time. Majority of times... When I am fighting with my wife, it's because I'm trying to fix her instead of just play my part. You want to know how I know this? Because she just wants me to listen to her, not fix her. What am I doing? I'm self-centered. 
well, if you just would do this, this wouldn't be a problem. That's not helpful, guys, right? Never goes well. Because I think I have all the answers. And I might be right, but it doesn't help in a relationship. I'm self-centered. I'm thinking I have the answers. When all reality, even if I do, I need to help my wife, my relationship, whoever I'm in relationship with, to look to God for the answers, not for me. So trusting God, trusting Him with His provision, your finances. Do I trust God with my finances? Or do I look to myself for my finances? Focus on God and His activity is humble before God. Deny self, seeks the king, first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seeks God's perspective in every circumstance. Chooses holy and godly living. In your situation, you go, man, this is what it feels like. This is what I don't understand. How can God really be at work? And God says, you don't see my vantage point. I was talking to a new family that just moved here, and they're from the Pacific Northwest, Oregon, and Washington. And so they're used to lots of trees, a.k.a. they're used to lots of pine trees, right? And they go, I thought this was called the city of trees. There's no trees. I go, Actually, there's a ton of trees. Where are they? If you climb up into the foothills and you look down in the valley, you'll see all sorts of trees, but they're not just pine trees. Boise, you don't know, it's French for trees. Le bois, le bois. The trees, the trees. When they came and settled here, that's what they saw. In the midst of the desert, they saw all these trees. Oh, I don't see the trees. You just got to have a different perspective, a different vantage point as you look down and go, oh, there's all the trees. They're just different trees than what you're actually looking for. What advantage, what perspective do you have? Are you seeking after God's perspective, his wisdom, or your own wisdom? And Jesus says, if you're willing to lose your life, your perspective, and gain my perspective, you'll actually gain it. How is your life a self-ruled life? Is it a self-centered way of living, or is it a God-centered way of living? Now, here's the thing. For me as a dad, um, you know, I, I struggle at times to think that all that I do is really about me. It's about my empire. It's about my name. But Jesus teaches his disciples how to, how to actually live a different way in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But how often does it move? Hallowed be my name. Thy empire. What is an empire? It's opposite to God's kingdom. My empire come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in my heart. God's kingdom lasts forever your empire, my empire, our empires, they will vanish. They are not eternal. And so what Jesus wants us to do is he wants us to practically look at our hearts, our minds, our motivations, and ask the question, what am I fighting for? What is the driving force in my life? And whatever's driving me has huge implications for my life, and it plays out in all sorts of different ways relationally. Just as one example, as a dad... It plays out, and I know it's funny, and I, and I do this with my family because it's funny, but here's the thing. All jokes and all humor usually has a little bit of truth to it. Are you with me? A little bit of truth. So how does this play out? It's funny, but a little bit of truth. It allows me to ask the question, 
why am I motivated to behave that way? Why is this so important to me? Why, what am I trying to get that makes me feel better that's not God-centered but self-centered? So let me give you an example. I mow the yard on Fridays. Friday's my Saturday. So I mow it on Fridays. My wife's gone to work. My kids are usually in the house because they don't want to go outside in the heat. And so I mow the yard. And then I wait to see what the response will be about how great the yard looks. <laughs> because I've got straight lines when I mow my yard. Are you with me? So as a dad, what is my response after I mow the yard? What's my response when, you know those light bulbs that go out? And they're never the light bulbs that are the lamp light bulbs. It's always the vaulted ceiling that is 20 feet in the air. You have to go get the ladder, bring it in, exchange the light bulb. How about that alarm, the smoke detector that beeps in the middle of the night? And everybody else sleeps all throughout the night. But I can't sleep because I keep hearing that beep. And what do I do in the middle of the night? I get the ladder, climb up. What about the garbage disposal that's clogged? And I'm the only one that knows how to fix it. The trash that just piles up more and more and more. And I eventually take it out. What is my response to all these situations? This is often my response when I get these things done. This is how I expect the world to respond back to me. And this is the response of my heart. Let's take a look at this video. So you get the point, right? If my wife, an hour into being home after I mowed the yard, doesn't say anything, I'm like, I mean, did you see what I did with the yard? <laughs> you, notice that, you notice that light bulb that's been burned out for a week? Right? Look at me. <laughs> What's your thing? I know it's funny. I know it's a joke, and I laugh, you know, and but... There's a part of that that's like, look at me. What if I just mowed the yard unto God and to my family and didn't need a... What if I took the trash out and just took the trash out? What, what am I trying to accomplish What's driving me? Is it self? Or is it God? What do I fight for? What are the things that, that I think are important? And are they actually in alignment with, with God and his purposes? Or is it trying to be a trophy dad? Which, by the way, is exhausting. It's exhausting because it, it never stops feeding. 
It never can be fed. It can never satisfy. Jesus is the only one that can satisfy. I'm just going to read this again, verse 25. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So what does this, what does this mean? Well, we're going to kind of work through these steps every single week. What does it mean to experience God? Well, first, we have to believe that God is always at work. Do you actually believe that God is always at work? God's part is he's at work. God's doing his thing. That's God's part. What's my part? Do I actually believe that? Do I believe that? And am I seeking after the things that God is up to? Am I looking for where he is at work I, and understanding that I'm his servant and that I'm going to adjust my life to what he's about to do or what that he's up to? I, I come under submission, surrender to him. If he's at work, I join him in what he's doing. And here's the cool thing about God. He never starts a mission apart from his children, you. God could just do it all on his own, but he's actually looking for you. He's looking to partner with you. God is looking for partners. That's God's job. He's looking across the land going, who wants to join me in what I'm about ready to do? And are you willing to adjust your life to his way of things? Are you willing to partner with him? Are you willing to look for a relationship with him, believing that that's what brings you life? Or are you looking to self. So where the rubber meets the road is are we willing to actually look, are we willing to look and evaluate every single area of our life? And we use this graphic a lot at real life. We call them relational spheres. And these are relational spheres that are talked about in Scripture. And the first one, Jesus says that is most important, is your relationship with Him. He says that if you abide in me, you will produce much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing so here's the question do you actually really believe that because if you actually really believe that it would be no big deal to get up 30 minutes earlier and spend time with jesus believing i can't do anything the rest of the day if i don't have him with me so i'm gonna get up and i'm gonna spend time with jesus because i can't i can't afford not to be with jesus do you really believe that? Do your actions show that? A life surrendered, submitted to Jesus. The next question then is your family. Is your relationship with your family a life focused on self or is it God-centered? Do you see yourself as a way to love and lead and serve your family or is your family a way to love and lead and serve you? Now, no, no joke. Like, it's awesome when my kids do the dishes. Let me just tell you, right? I love when they do the dishes. Why do they do the dishes? Why do I want them to do the dishes? Because their job is to serve me or their job is to be equipped to learn how to live life. Fine line of a motivation, right? What about my relationship with my spouse? Do I see my spouse as someone that's supposed to serve me or that I am called to serve them? And believing that Jesus is enough Jesus is enough. Because here's the thing. I'm going to talk to people that are single really quick. Like, if Jesus is not enough in your relationship, your future spouse is never going to be enough for you. 
If Jesus is enough, your spouse is never going to be enough. They're supposed to give me life. Actually, they're not. They're not. Only Jesus can give you life. What about in your, your church? Like, if you call real life home, like, what posture do you enter in with real life? That, that real life is just a place that's supposed to feed you? That real life is supposed to, to take care of you? Or do you see real life as, I'm a part of a family that's on mission to reach the world, and I have a part to play in reaching those people far from Jesus? What's the mindset? What's the posture? What about your community? What about work? I'm here to work and to get paid. Yes. But what if you entered into work from the mindset, I'm here to serve people? Even the other people in that annoying department that always messes up my job or my thing that I got to get done. Is God enough? And if He is, you get to serve, you get to submit to Jesus, you get to love people. What about your neighbors, even the annoying neighbors? The neighbors that have weeds that are four feet tall in their front yard and lower the value of your home when you go to resell. How could you love? How could you serve? How could you be God-centered and maybe have God's perspective that maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe they're lazy and they don't steward the house well or maybe their life is a mess because of hurt because of cancer and maybe maybe you could step in and say this is what God's like and love here's the thing when we become God-centered when we become focused on him when we decide that we're going to be a servant submitted to him and his will and his ways and his work God can do amazing things and move amazing mountains I love this quote from Henry Blackaby in Experiencing God he says this he says, God will accomplish more in six months through a people yielded to him than we could ever do in 60 years without, without him. Would you say amen to that? I would say God could do more in six seconds than what we could do and try in six years, whatever metric you want to use. And the reason why I know this is because as a pastor of this church, I get to see that happen in your heart and in your life over and over again. Are there difficult things that happen within the church? Are there stressors and pastoral things? Absolutely. But there are also life after life after life that Jesus begins to transform and move when people are yielded, submitted, surrendered, God-centered to him, not self-centered, not self-focused. And it happened again last week. After service last week, I had a family come up to me. This has been coming for about a year. They were here when we talked about the Roe versus Wade decision, that abortions were getting banned here at church or here in the state of Idaho. And I challenged you as the church and just said, hey, this is what we've decided as an eldership. We need to be willing to actually walk beside women that have unplanned pregnancies, whether they're teenagers or adults, it doesn't matter because a lot of the other facilities here in the valley are actually closing in response to abortions not being allowed. But there is one organization, Stanton, that's not closing. They're staying open and offer free medical care to women that have unexpected pregnancies. Pretty amazing, isn't it? And I said this, I said, we're gonna support that organization financially, but we can't just write a check and say, we've done our job, church. That's not what the church is supposed to do. 
to absolve responsibility of whatever hurt might be going on in the community, we're called to enter into the hurt, especially if it's in our church. Because there may come a day when we have youth in our church that have an unexpected pregnancy. How are we gonna respond? Do we have resources ready to walk beside them? Not only financially, medically, but relationally. It's easy to hold a sign and tell the world they're wrong. Do you get me? It's a whole nother thing to open up your bedroom to a teenager who's been kicked out of their home because they're pregnant. And this family came up to me after service last week and said, yeah, you talked about that situation that could happen in our church, that could happen in our community. I said, yeah. They said, we've got an extra bedroom. If this situation ever pops up, we want you to know we've got a bed for that woman. God can do more in six seconds if we're centered on Him. We could ever try and do in our own power and our own might when we're focused on ourselves for 60 years. Are you with me, church? God can move mountains. And He's calling to move mountains in your heart. He's calling on you to do things that you go, that's scary. And he's like, yeah, it's scary. But let me tell you, nothing satisfies like my kingdom, like my relationship, like my love for you. And if I'm calling on you to do this, I want you to join me at what I'm doing. Join me in the work that I'm doing. And trust me with whatever the result is. What would happen if we, just, just the people in this room, just the people in this room, what would happen if we lived that way just for this week? That we left here and said, I'm gonna do everything in my power to be God-centered. I'm gonna do everything in my power not to be self-centered. I'm gonna do everything I can to look to God this week and have him speak to me and me to be fully surrendered to him. What if you started a new experience in God this week? What if you, what if you turned off the radio and just started praying to God when you drove? What if you just took a little bit of your life and said, I know this needs to be surrendered to you, my marriage, my neighbor, my finances, whatever it is, and you just said, I want it to be God-centered this week. What could God do? What could God do? I think he could turn this community upside down in you and through you. That's what I think. Give me 100 people that are ready to charge the mountain over 1,000 people that just want to be entertained every week. Because those 100 people, they'll change the world through Jesus. So one next step is Jesus inviting you into this morning. We got this take-home slide that I want you to just take a look at. And I just want you to have a conversation with Jesus this morning. What is it that Jesus is inviting you into as we get ready for communion? What next step is he inviting you into? And if you came this morning and you didn't have communion, you, you forgot to get it, and you want to take communion, just raise your hand right now, and Jane will be sure to make sure that you get communion, because we would love for you to take communion this morning. Just keep your hand raised. It may take her a little while to get to you. But we take communion every single week together as a church family. And we take it together after we've spent time with Jesus focused on him, surrendered to him. 
And I just want you to bow your heads and have a conversation with him about what it means to be God-centered this morning. Let's spend some time with the Father.